Philippians chapter 2. Certainly a well-known passage as we consider Christ's exaltation. We'll read uh, question and answer 28 in the shorter catechism. That's found in the back of the red hymnal, page 871. We'll read that answer together. And Philippians 2, 1, 1 through 11 is certainly a um, well-known passage dealing with the exaltation of Christ. And so we'll use that and various other passages to think about these things tonight for our Catechism lesson. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Let's hear from God's holy word. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Question 28, page 871, the back of the red hymnal. Read the answer together. Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. The humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ can at least be partially illustrated by thinking about a solar eclipse. I hope my good buddy... uh, David Knott is watching, because he's a big fan of eclipses. You think about the humiliation, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that it can be partially illustrated by thinking about a solar eclipse. The sun shines in all of its glory, and once every sev- several years, just for a few moments, the moon completely darkens the light of the sun along what I believe is called the path of totality. And people kind of travel to get in that band where the, the moon is going to completely cover the sun. Everywhere else, there's a a partial blocking. You have to be careful about looking into the sky under those circumstances. In the path of totality, I believe you're able to to look up and and take it all in. This can be a partial illustration of the humiliation of Christ in coming to earth because the light of Christ's divine nature 
always is shining. It's, it's burning bright and gloriously. The divine nature of Jesus Christ did not lessen when he came to earth as a man. It was shining as much as ever. But the glory of the person of Christ was veiled for a time. That the person of Christ, his glory was veiled for a time. It was veiled by his human nature. It's a good way to remember that though Christ assumed a certain form, as the form of, of a servant, he did not cease to be God. He did not lose any of his divine attributes in that way. It's only a partial illustration, though, because it breaks down, as most illustrations do, particularly when you are trying to make illustrations about God himself. After the solar eclipse is over, the moon goes back to being the moon. The sun goes back to being the sun. But after Christ's exaltation, not only does his divine nature shine gloriously, as it always has and always will and always had, but after the resurrection of Christ, his human nature shines gloriously. It is exalted. It is raised to the highest place. His, he advances his own human nature, and thus that becomes something about how we think about our own human nature for those who are united with Christ. In fact, when we are talking about the exaltation of Christ, we are chiefly dealing with the fact that it was the human nature of Jesus which had been resurrected and raised and ascended to heaven. These are things, dwelling in heaven, living eternally, these are things that we would expect for someone who is divine. But for someone who is human, who has a human nature, they are remarkable. And of course, as a representative person in salvation history, Jesus, as one who was doing all of the things that he did for others, it is precisely at these points that there are all kinds of benefits that Christians need to know and to take note of. I've been kind of oscillating between our catechism and learning about this catechism, showing the connections between the two, particularly in the last few weeks. And the Heidelberg Catechism is particularly helpful uh, and a helpful document because it often asks the question, so how is this good for me? What good does this do? What, what benefit do I accrue because of Jesus doing this or God doing this? And it is particularly at this point, the exaltation of Christ, his resurrection, his ascending into heaven, where the Heidelberg Catechism rattles, rattles off several of those questions. How does the resurrection of Christ benefit me? How does the ascension of Christ benefit me? What comfort can I take from the coming judgment of Christ? I believe one reason for that is because the heavenly nature of our salvation, which is, you boil down the Christian faith. What is it? It's a heavenly faith. The heavenly nature of our salvation is the place, that is the particular place where we need to find immense comfort and benefit if our faith means anything at all. It's a heavenly faith. So the fact that Christ, that, that Christ has been raised, that he is in heaven, that he reigns as our king at the Father's right hand, and that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, all of those things have immense benefits for us. They bring us comfort. Without all of these things, our faith is useless. Without all of these things, as Paul says, we are to be pitied. Why would we 
serve God the way that we do? Why would we give our lives? Why would we die to ourselves and become crucified to the world and crucified to our flesh unless all of these things were true? Christ has been raised, and thus the usefulness, the comforts, and the blessings abound in this area of doctrine. There are four elements to the exaltation of Christ mentioned in the shorter catechism. We will look at all of them using uh, different scriptures with an eye towards Philippians 2. They are this. The resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the session of Christ, or the reign of Christ, and the second coming and judgment. The first stage of Christ's exaltation, then, is the resurrection. The reason that this is remarkable, as we mentioned, is because Jesus is not only divine, he is human. And we know the realities of death. We know that people die, but that people are not raised from the dead, at least normally. Jesus did this a few times in his ministry, uh, raised a couple people, um, at least, and there may have been uh, more and several more. And sometimes the Bible says things that kind of shock you, that the uh, when Jesus was raised, people uh, came out of the tombs, you know. Um, and certainly it is true that uh, when we're talking about a human resurrection, that is why it is so remarkable. Jesus did not die according to his divine nature. He died according to his human nature. And so that's what we're dealing with, the exaltation of his human nature through the resurrection. The resurrection is remarkable. It is an exaltation because it is Jesus' victory over death. He becomes the victor over death, over the grave, over sin, and over evil. He has vanquished death. Romans 6 verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He has vanquished the one who has the power of death. It's, it's interesting how there's glory and shame kind of embedded into competition. Uh, I have two, you know, I'm biased, but I have two very sweet little girls. And uh, teaching them to play board games, it's just remarkable how they just naturally know how to gloat. You know, one of them wins and they start, you know, kind of gloating and dancing around the room. And I have to teach them, okay, you need to, you need to win graciously and lose graciously. A very difficult lesson to learn. I don't know how good I am at that, winning graciously and losing graciously. Christ is the victor over death. He is the one who has vanquished the one who has the power of death. And thus he has put the loser to shame. He has done that in his resurrection. And so Philippians 2 summarizes all of that by saying that God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. Now, that's remarkable because it's the human name of God the Son, Jesus. He has given him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, and I think Paul there is pointing particularly to the human nature of, of Christ, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. It will be a man that receives glory at the end of all things. A God-man, yes, but an exalted God-man. All that he does, he does as a a representative. All that Jesus does, he does as as a representative for the benefit of others, as, as a head, a covenant head, or a federal head and representative. 
That's why our own Heidelberg Catechism says things like, well, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And answers it by this, by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Romans chapter 6, once again, expounds on this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Christ does not serve sin. He does not serve death. He is uh, the living one. He is purely life and and, uh, life abundant. Thus, those who are united to him share in those benefits. We are no longer to serve sin. We are to no longer be enslaved to sin who have the life of Jesus Christ. Second, by his power, Heidelberg goes on, we too are already now raised to a new life. Romans 6 again. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is Christ? He he is alive to righteousness. Thus we are to be the same way. Resurrected to this new life that we share in Christ and by the power of the Spirit, how are we to live? Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. The apostle is saying, you share in this resurrection. You share in the life of Christ. So let that life permeate through you and in you and live accordingly. And then, of course, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. We look to it. That is how we can know. Christ has been raised. That is a fact. Thus we know we too will be raised from the dead. Resurrection of Christ. The second stage, the second element of Christ's exaltation is his ascension. He ascended to heaven. He walked on earth for 40 days. And then at the end of that 40 days, he ascends into heaven. Like the resurrection, it is his human nature and form which ascended to heaven. His divine nature always existed outside of his human body. But here, uh, his human body, his human nature is brought up into heaven. He, he kind of breaks through a glass ceiling there. That which human beings were not able to enter, Jesus enters for us as a, as a forerunner to go into heaven, to be with God, to be in the righteousness of his kingdom. And there are all kinds of things that we can, can take from that. But what I'd like to focus on here is that Jesus, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as our Head, Because he ascends to heaven, this is why the Christian faith is heavenly. This is why our attention, our thoughts, are to be oriented towards heaven. This is why our greatest desire is that we would be in heaven because we want to be where Jesus is. The ascension of Christ turns the whole of our faith towards heaven. John 16, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. That is when I leave. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says that when he is apart from his people, there is to be a yearning that we would be brought back together. The Heidelberg Catechism, once again, in talking about the benefit that we have from Christ's ascension, says, by the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. The goal of our lives, heavenly things. Why? Because of the ascension. Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We long to be where he is because we love him. We love Jesus. When you truly love someone, you do not want to be away from them. You want to be with them. I'm always uh, I, a bit of a softy for these videos where um, a dad comes back from military deployment and he surprises his, his kids or something and everybody's kind of gushing with tears and I'm watching my computer screen, I'm crying. And I guess we're watching these this afternoon. Um, you know, when you love someone, you don't want to be away from them. You want to be with them. We love Jesus and we want to be with him. His, his ascension, the third element of the exaltation of Christ is his session or his reign. Three parts to this. First, he, as the ascended king, is a gift giver. Secondly, he is a defender. Thirdly, he is an intercessor. What does he do? He does many things. We'll focus on these three as the one who sits at God's right hand. First, he is a gift giver. As I mentioned, Psalm 68, verse 18 You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Psalm 68, a king receiving the spoils of war. A king who is victorious on the battlefield, what is he going to get? There's all kinds of spoils that he's going to get and be able to take from that. Ephesians 4 picks up on that, says Jesus Christ ascends on high, and he receives gifts so that he may give them, so that he may share them with us. So Ephesians 4, verse 7 and 8. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Jesus Christ, the one who receives the spoils of war, then graciously, benevolently gives gifts to his people. Why? For the benefit of the body of Christ. The Spirit gives us gifts. The Spirit gives us the gift of being conformed to the image of Christ. The Spirit gives us the gift of the fruit of the Spirit. We we live in a Christ-like way. We all have have particular uh, giftings and passions that contribute to the health of the body of Christ. And all of that is happening because Jesus is reigning at God's right hand. Those things which God gives to you by which you can serve the body of Christ, that's not from your own strength. That's from Christ who has ascended. 
So again, our catechism. How does the glory, this glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? Through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon his members. 1 Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. We have to think about the risen Christ, the exalted Christ, and what he allows us to do for what? For the health of the body of Christ. It's not so much about obsessing over maybe one particular gift that God gives you, that the Spirit gives to you. It's rather how he equips us as whole persons to contribute to the health of the church, to build each other up, to pray for each other so that the body might be kept healthy. He's a gift giver. He's a defender. Christ, as he's ascending, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What we believe is that Jesus Christ, through his sovereign power, is working out his purposes in the world for his glory and our good. If we truly believe he is reigning and ruling the way that scripture tells us, then we will not doubt that that everything that happens only happens through the mediatorial reign of Christ. He's a defender. He loves us. He works for our good. He does that which is good and helpful for us. He keeps us safe from our enemies. He's a defender. And then lastly, he is an intercessor. We seek to serve God, but we know that we fall in many ways. So what is the the comfort? Your perfect Savior, the one who is your refuge, the one in whom you hide. He intercedes for you. He pleads your case to God the Father. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't sin. Don't live in sin. Don't make a practice of sinning. But if you do stumble and fall, you have an advocate. And that's a comfort because you know he has ascended. You know that he is sitting at God's right hand. He is reigning and ruling there for your good and for God's glory. The fourth element is that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. The coming judgment is when we will see Christ exalted as he ought to be. It will be when that which we see comes into, uh, it's conformed to that which is actually true. It will be the day to make plain to the world, particularly to the unbelieving, that they have failed to acknowledge, they have failed to ascribe glory to the king, the true king, the one who is always reigning, the one who is behind and above every throne, the one who was exercising true authority through every rising and every fall of every kingdom. It will be the day where every other power, every other authority will come before Jesus and pay him his proper respect and honor. So if you are abiding in him, if you are honoring him, if you are trusting in him, and if you are seeking to serve him, the thought of this day is a great comfort to you. The idea of judgment, the idea of the final judgment, ought to be a terrifying thought for many. But for those who are abiding in Christ, for those who are trusting in him, for those who are seeking to give him glory, that day is a comfort. 
Heidelberg Catechism, how, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. Oftentimes in this life you will need to take comfort and solace in that God will make all things right at the last day. We often don't get to even out the balance of justice, the scales of justice. Oftentimes all we can do is entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. A couple points of application then as we close. First is this. Learn and embrace the way of humility. How was Christ exalted? How did he get to his place? It was not through prideful self-advancement. It was through humility. In fact, this is the, the context of Paul's whole of Paul's passage there in Philippians chapter 2. Before he begins speaking of Christ, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then Philippians, uh, in, in that passage, it puts the glory and the exaltation of Christ before us. Right? But Paul isn't just sort of decides to talk about that at that moment, he brings us to the glory and the exaltation of Christ so that we will be encouraged to walk the same path. How do we experience the, the honor, the exaltation that God is willing to give? The path of humility, the path that Jesus walked. That is the reason why it is put before us. So learn and embrace the way of humility. We so naturally kind of go through uh, the process of evaluating others, evaluating the actions of ourselves and others in terms of rivalry, conceit, or envy. The way of the gospel is live like Jesus. Like what we talked about this morning, seeking to meet needs, seeking to die to yourself, to be crucified to the world. Live like Jesus. Learn and embrace the way of humility. So often we think that if we live in utter humility that there's no way to kind of advance our own cause. Look at what Jesus did. Look at how he lived. Look at how he lived his life. Humbling himself for others. Living in that kind of a way. And how is he living now? Exalted and given the name that is above every name. If Jesus had, can have such different states on earth and in heaven then so can we, because we will never be humbled to the place where he was. And he will always have the supreme place of exaltation. Our exaltation will always exist under his. So we'll never go as low as he went, and we will never be exalted to the same exact place. But we, living humbly on this earth, will too be exalted. We need to also learn, in connection to this, that suffering goes before glory. We are to suffer with him, and and if we do, then we shall reign with him, as 2 Timothy 2.12 says. Thomas Watson says this, Many desire to be glorified with Christ, but they are not content to suffer for him. 
The wicked first reign and then suffer. The godly first suffer and then reign. There is no way to Constantinople but through the strait. No way to heaven but through sufferings. No way to the crown but by the cross. Jerusalem above is a pleasant city. Streets of gold, gates of pearl. But we must travel through a dirty road to it. Through many reproaches and sufferings. Learn that suffering goes before glory. How could it be any other way when we have seen Jesus walk that very path? Next, take comfort that because you are in Christ, he will share his glory with you. He says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I was reading the story of Joseph a couple of weeks ago. You know, he's, he keeps getting these terrible circumstances He's in, the, he's in the, the prison, and remember, the chief cupbearer is, uh, he interprets the dream correctly, and the chief cupbearer is then restored to Pharaoh's court, and Joseph says, make sure you remember me when, when you get out, right? I helped you here, so just all you got to do is mention me to Pharaoh. And we read, the chief cupbearer forgot. <laughs> he, he comes out of prison, and, and he forgets. So Joseph remains there uh, in jail. It should be a comfort to us that Jesus will not forget us. He's gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. He's not going to forget us. He will take us to be with him. John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to share in that glory. Next, if Christ has elevated our nature, do not lower yourself to the way of sinfulness. Christ advances human nature to this place of righteousness and life. So those who are united to him, those, are, those who are in him, need to understand how warped it is to claim Christ and live in sin. How awful it is to, to, to claim Jesus Christ and to abide in him, or say you are abiding in him, and living according to your old nature. If Christ has elevated our nature, do not lower yourself to the way of sinfulness. And then lastly, exalt Christ in your heart the way he is really exalted in heaven. I think the powerful image of Philippians 2 is that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But you have the opportunity to do that now. We have the opportunity to live with the knee bent to Jesus Christ now. And, and our doing that is in conformity with the way, that, uh, with the truth, the reality about the universe now. He's already reigning. One day that will become plain to everyone. So let your heart be aligned with the true reality of things. Bend the knee to Jesus Christ now. For there will come a day where every knee will bow. And for some that will be an awful day. For some, that will be a terrifying day. But for those who bend the knee now, it will be a glorious day. It is a day that comforts us as we think about it, as we look forward to it, that he will come to vindicate his people. So love him. Live the kind of life that he lived, humbly, trying to serve others, suffering before glory. He is now dead to death. He has vanquished death. We are to live as though dead to sin. We give ourselves to him. Let your heart be aligned with the true reality of things with the way that you exalt Christ in your hearts today. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for these truths. We pray that we will be comforted by all of these things. We thank you that Jesus rose again, that he ascended to heaven, that he sits, Father, at your right hand, and that he will come again. May all of these things, may we draw immense comfort from all of these things. We thank you and we praise you for them. May the Spirit impress them on our hearts. We thank you for this day to worship and praise you. We pray you would be with us as we go. In Jesus' name.